0: Please turn to Psalm 21, a psalm of David. O Lord, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your victory how greatly he exalts. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him, length of days, forever and ever. His glory is great through your victory, splendor and majesty you bestow on him, for you make him most blessed forever. You make him glad with the joy of your face, for the king trusts in the Lord, and through the steadfast love of the Most High he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven in the day when your face appears. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. For you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. As I shared with you in the prayer, five days ago, a minister of our own congregation or our own denomination took his life. At the age of 67, by no means a young person, he succumbed to a persistent darkness after a long struggle with depression. It is shocking to hear. This is not something that you learn of every day, but it also makes you think of the bigger picture. It is an incentive And it does also serve a good purpose. You may be young. You may be old. Or you may be somewhere in between. And if life is a highway, you may only have one exit left to take. Or you may be sure that you will get to enjoy many stops, many sights to see along your freeway, on which you travel, but we all know that you will get car sick. Sooner or later, one way or another, you will get car sick. And we rarely turn in, turn into the rest area. And it's not only you who gets old. No. Being on the road of life itself can get old, even if you're in your prime. Hoarding money gives you no joy. Career, success, pleasure, they are overrated and too easy to get used to. Even family by itself does not hold a reason, a real reason to live. It does not hold happiness in and of itself. And of course, we do not mention, we do not speak of how all these good things that God gives us to enjoy freely, that we convert into our idols, how they enslave us how they make us slaves while promising us a life of freedom, futile freedom. Now, unless God gives you a real victory and a triumph to look forward to, you will stall. And your life will end like a highway in the middle of nowhere, unfinished. Or, like a train that suddenly derails because no more tracks have been laid. Now, there was a battle, we learned in Psalm 20. And now, exuberant jubilation, celebration, Psalm 20 showed the people and the king praying to God for deliverance. And God heard them. Israel set up their banners in the name of Yahweh, and they charged the battlefield and won the victory. And now Psalm 21 picks up the pieces, just where Psalm 20 ended Psalm 21 invites you to bask in the sunshine of the victory and of the blessings that King David enjoys, as well as to have confidence in a day when all enemies will be subjected, subdued with no more threat or challenge to rise against the kingdom of God a shape of last things. For when you fly over Psalm 21, you discover that just like 20, it's a song of two halves. The first six verses, which we study today, praise God for hearing the prayer of the king, whereas 8 through 13, which is another set of six verses, Project that victory, that triumph, into the distant future. And this is how the psalm works. This is its internal logic. This is the engine of the psalm. David has won a great battle, but the war isn't over. World War I was hailed as the war to end all wars. One war to end all of them. And the dream was short-lived, and there was a rude awakening. David suffers from no such illusions. Israel is not out of the woods. There will be conflict. But there is also the certainty that the final victory is in no doubt And Psalm 21 lives between these two realities. A victory that is in the books. It's done. And a future that is sure to come. One victory accomplished, the other promised, underwritten by God's name, guaranteed by God's name. So how do you live between these two? Between now and then? How do you follow David celebrating a victory and also projecting the victory into the distant future? A future that carries hope that's not up for sale. Look at verse seven. I haven't mentioned it yet, but verse seven is the structural and theological center of Psalm 21. It's exactly in the middle, dividing the two halves, 1 through 6 and 8 through 13. And Psalm 7 identifies God's steadfast love as the reason why he granted victory. This steadfast love of God was met by David's trust. As verse 7 also says, the king trusts in Yahweh. He trusts in his steadfast love. And his trust in God's steadfast love came to expression in his prayer for deliverance. You loved us. Well, now you must deliver us. You can't forget us. You can't pass us by. You must be here for us, with us. And based on God's steadfast love, God granted victory. This is the chain of events that we studied last week. But you recognize, don't you, This is also timeless. It's a timeless pattern. How many times has it unfolded in the passage of time since the beginning when people began to call upon the name of the Lord? How many times? How many times have you seen it unfold? How many times have you been reading it in the Bible? How many times have you heard it preached This is timeless. This is, this, this is no artifact. In a glass case, in a museum, God's steadfast love today is as real and as fresh as it ever has been. God's steadfast love is the love by which God binds himself to you unconditionally. It's a love that makes you secure so that, like David, you cannot be moved. You cannot be lost. You cannot be snatched away from God's hand. No one can separate you from this love because his love is forever anchored in God's greater King, Jesus Christ, and not David, for this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So there is an atonement. We are at one with God. Listen to David. Read Psalm 21. You see how David revels in the blessings that God granted him in answer to his prayers on the heels of the victory on the battlefield. A crown is put on his head. This is not only a crown of victory, this is a crown that signifies dominion. And this is not any dominion, it's a glorious dominion. As he speaks of majesty, glory, and honor put on him like a crown. And then he speaks of longevity. His words approach eternal life. He speaks of living in God's presence Staying face to face with God, where there is never-ending joy at God's right hand. And he may be thinking about the eternal nature of his dynasty, that God had promised him, according to Second Samuel chapter seven verse 16, that it would live on and go on forever. And this is Hebrew poetry. And like all poetry, it uses figures of speech, it uses metaphor, it uses similitude, it uses dramatization, it uses hyperbole, and it uses words and phrases that have different or fuller meanings than their immediate senses or meanings. It is for this very purpose that God also gave us poetry. Namely, to say something of one thing that also speaks of a reality well beyond that thing. For example, if I were a gardener, and if I loved horticulture, I don't, but if I did... I would wax eloquent about a fruitful tree that I have planted beside the waters, as you can read in Psalm 1, a tree that bears fruit and a tree that nourishes my household. But the very idea already bears the contours of something greater, a tree of life that never fails to bear fruit unto eternal life. And though I have never heard of the tree of life I do know the idea, and the idea is projected already in the image. And so here in Psalm 21, David rejoices in his blessings, and his joy is real, and there is a real historical grounding in a real battlefield with a real victory that God granted. Well, when you look at his diction, when you look at his flowery language, when you look at his poetry, you suspect This is a good form of suspicion. It's a suspicion that asks the right questions. You suspect that his exuberance transcends his daily experience in the human plane. I imagine that you will make the same experience. If you have any comfort today, if you experience any joy in the spirit today, wait until you get ready for work tomorrow morning and see how you feel then. Probably not exactly the same way, because you cannot preserve the moment. You cannot preserve this feeling, this experience. David's joy was real. Oh, yes, it was. And so were the blessings. But his experience of them wasn't perfect, wasn't consummate, and wasn't complete. And by the same token, David was a man after God's own heart and in many ways a model king. But he needed a king far greater than himself to save him. And our deliverance is not in a king who lies buried somewhere in Jerusalem. And our victory must come from a king who has conquered death and hell. A king who has secured our forgiveness and passage into God's kingdom. And his victory is the victory that all believers celebrate. Or we must learn to celebrate by making it our own. And we make it our own by faith in him. Now, do I take liberties? Do I take liberties in reading David's triumph in terms of Christ's who rose from the grave? Do you recall what the apostles did when they began to interpret the Old Testament through the lens of the events that had transpired in Jesus' ministry? Do you recall what they preached? It was a novelty, not only the way that they preached it, but as to the content of their preaching. It was a novelty because they preached the resurrection as the victory that we enjoy because we make it our own by faith as God intends it. And they preached the Old Testament just the way that Jesus himself had taught them because Jesus trained his disciples to hear Moses, hear the prophets, and hear the Psalms speaking of him. And Jesus was not only affirming a fuller meaning of the Old Testament, he said, I am. I am the fuller meaning. So when you read Psalm 21, we see him who for a little while was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone and wrestle it to the ground. He tasted death for you. He rose for you. His victory is yours, yours to celebrate. And Jesus Christ is not ashamed to call you his brother or sister. As he says, he isn't ashamed to call you brother, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. And in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Well, now you have landed right here in Psalm 21, listening to the voice not only of David, but of Jesus Christ, praising the Father. Can you join him? Will you join him? Well, in one sense, the praise of God is an acquired taste. In another sense, it isn't. It's the most common thing that you could think of. But in one sense, it is an acquired taste. Take poetry, for example, as you have it here in Psalm 21. Take a masterful novel. Take even scripture. All these are nothing. They are nothing but black papers on white paper, uh, black letters on white paper. If you're illiterate. What good does the Bible do to you if you can't read it? If you have never tasted a schnitzel, how will you know how good it is? How will you know what you are missing if you have never tasted a schnitzel? So it is with God's praise. Unless you've tasted that the Lord is good... (laughs) You won't find a reason to lift up your heart to God's throne and exalt his name. Because you're a sinner at odds with God. You are a sinner rebelling against God. And if you haven't been saved, true praise is beyond you. All that you are left with is the counterfeit. But take him at his word. Take him. Take him at his word. Receive his testimony concerning his son and know that God's testimony concerning his son is greater than the testimony of men. For people tell you one thing or another and you may choose to believe them or you know that their words are hollow. You can't take them seriously. But do you own God's testimony concerning his own son? Do you own it as truth? And do you lean, lean into Jesus Christ with all your strength? You say, well, I don't know. How do I know that I'm there? Well, this is how you know. Whoever believes in the Son has the testimony in himself. 1 John 5, 10. Now, is this simple enough? Whoever believes has the testimony in himself. For God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. You have the testimony of Jesus in yourself. And you know what? That's one thing that's not up for sale. It's not for sale. Because God put it there. It's not of your making. It didn't get there because you wanted it. Or you opened your heart and you received Jesus Christ as your Savior. God put it there. And you did receive it too. You must receive it. But God put it there. And therefore there it shall remain. And God keeps it there. Safe. And it may be buried. And it may be forgotten. But it's still there. It's irreversible. You can, in fact, you can never go back. You can never go back. And if you do, it only means that you have never had his testimony within you in the first place. Because God teaches you to pray, Abba, Father, because he gives you the spirit of adoption, he makes you his child. Your human father may be a scoundrel. And you may love your father or you may hate your father. He may have been good or evil. And even if he is dead and he is no longer here, your father will always be your father, like it or not. But if this is true at a human level, how much more with God? He will always be there for you. He will never shun his responsibility for you. He will never fail to be there for you. And unlike anyone else, his strength is unlimited. You see how this psalm is so beautifully framed by references to the strength of God. The phrase, in your strength, in the first verse, and then in the last verse, means that the steadfast love, which is at the center of the psalm, is buttressed, supported by the strength of God. So that God is not only willing, but he is well able to keep you safe in his name, in his strength. And so he extends or he translates the victory of his Son, Jesus Christ, into your life. And even though it is done in a way that nobody would expect it, merely through faith in a word, it is so unobtrusive. This is the power of God, if you can see it. Your mom loves you probably like no one else. But your mom can't keep you safe. Your mom is not going to be around forever. And when you were small, your dad was probably the next best thing to God himself. Big Daddy, it's what you called him. Here's my big daddy. But soon you discovered that your big daddy, his ability to keep you, or even his ability to love you, is so very limited. Because dad is damaged good himself. Dad needs the king to save him too. But God, God is your big daddy. Don't you know? Don't you see? He commands angels to stand their ground and fight to keep you safe. And one word from his throne shuts down every siren. So, I ask you, why not join David in his praise of the king's victory? Do we not have a right to celebrate? Do we not have the privilege? Or is there something that we have missed Is there something that we didn't get? No. For while in the one sense, God's praise is an acquired taste, it does require having your heart tuned to praise God. In another sense, it's a very common thing. In another sense, it is what all people are made for. In fact, it's the sublime expression of what it means to be a human being, to give back God's blessings and the greatest of them and is his great salvation, to give his blessings back to him in the form of praise, in the form of a life that glorifies him. If birds and whales must sing with no question of choice, well, then, living is our song, indeed our voice, giving back God's blessings to Him in the form of praise. And we are made for it, we are designed for it. And Psalm 21 teaches you how. Yes, we are made for it. And you witness praise. You can see it almost everywhere you go. Once you train your eyes to see it, you will notice it. Because we spontaneously praise what we love and treasure and adore and prize. Boy, that pound cake was good, wasn't it? What do you think about it? This is a good film. You ought to watch it. This is a fantastic book. Read it. What a beautiful piece of music. You should listen to this. So you praise what you love. And not only this, but you want to share it with others. It's natural. It's the way that we've been built. Even upon the danger of being misunderstood or rejected. Oh, please don't let me be misunderstood. But when you found something, when you found someone to be prized, someone whom you treasure, someone whom you rejoice in, you want to praise and you want to share it with others because joy and praise, they can't be separated. They are forever linked, inseparable. Praise and joy must go together, because praise completes joy. It's the perfection of the joy that you experience when you see God, when you hear Him. And therefore, praise can't be suppressed. when you know you know people who love what they do they love their hobby and they can't stop talking about it because they are so enamored even though you are bored to death to hear it again and again and again can this person talk about something else but the person can't help it he must speak of his hobby he loves it he adores it so it is with the praise of god you want to speak you want to share it with others because you can't suppress it. this the, the the praise of god can't be pent up and and this is um this is something that wants to be expressed and it is one thing that uh, over these many years in the churches of Jesus Christ i have never quite gotten over now as you know as you get older you um, you find fewer things that really surprise you. You can never say, well, I've seen this, I've done this before. There's always something new that you haven't seen or done before. But there are things that you see again and again and again, and they still surprise you because you struggle to find an explanation, and you can't. So it is that in every church... When it is time to raise your voice and to praise God in singing, there will always be some who refuse to sing. Even though God gave them a voice to do just that, they will not do it. And I struggle to explain it. Giving people the benefit of a doubt would mean to say, well, there's got to be a good or valid reason, and I can't come up with one. Except to say, then, maybe this person is dumb. (laughs) But you see, praise wants to be expressed, it wants to be liberated, it wants to be set free, and it wants to be shared in speech, in singing, and most of all, in corporate communal enactments of the same. Because it is when you praise God with others that praise is accentuated and lifted to the highest level. Like the electric atmosphere at a sports event with 80,000 people in a stadium making a big noise. It makes the game more exhilarating than to have the two teams play against each other in an empty arena. It's the atmosphere that raises the event to the next, to the higher level. And God gives us every reason to praise Him. He gives us the ultimate reason to praise him. We have nothing to worry about. We have nothing to fear. We have nothing to lose. Only everything to gain. Jesus praised God in the singing of psalms on the eve of his crucifixion before he went to the garden where he was arrested and he saw what was coming, and he sang a psalm with his disciples to focus his attention on God's glory. Now, what kind of fair-weather Christians are we if even at the suggestion of a problem that might arise, we are losing it, we lose the narrative? Can't we learn from him? Our confession says it so well. And you've heard it many times. The chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him to forever. Well, glorifying and enjoying are two sides of the same coin. They are one. No one. I, I can assure you, nobody glorifies God without also delighting in God's surpassing greatness and goodness. And the enjoyment of God, the delight of God, demands expression, it demands praise. And if you're drunk with the love of God in Jesus Christ, if you are mesmerized and captured by His majesty, and if you are drawn out by His drawing near to you with no respect of persons, then you must praise Him. What is left to do but to praise Him? As His presence humbles you and elates you at the same time. And so to fully enjoy God is to praise God. It's the same. Can't be separated. It's like a man who was born deaf. And suddenly he hears the voices of people all around him. I can hear you. And he jumps to his feet and he shouts in jubilation. And as you follow his dance because you are so curious, you find him sitting beside a fountain, listening to the bubbling of water for the first time in his life. And tears run down his face and he keeps whispering in response of the bubbling over of his soul, Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. I can hear you. Can you hear him? Son, daughter, I have loved you before the world was. I have redeemed you by the blood of my king, my son who won your victory. And to make you absolutely certain of it, I have seated him on my right hand. And there he shall be until he comes again far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age that is to come. If you grow in Jesus, if you grow in his grace, you make the experience, and this is, this is an ongoing experience in your life, But you make the experience that there are some things that are no longer for sale. They're not up for sale. Your sexual purity, your career, all of these things that are compromised so easily, you begin to learn that, no, this is not up for sale. And on the top of that list, There is the victory. There's nothing else but his victory. There is the victory that Christ has won for me. And this is where I take my stand. Now, I may have a lousy day. And I may worry about tomorrow. But I will not take Christ's victory to the auction house. And sell it off for something else. Do not take the victory to the auction house. Do not put it up for sale. It's not up for sale. And if I have to preach to my own soul, saying, why are you cast down? Hmm?" Praise Him. Encourage yourself in Him. Take courage in Him. Strengthen yourself in Him. Well, this is what I will do, so God help me. And if... And if there is a certain darkness, persistent and looming, that reaches for me, a darkness that will not lift. And if even sunshine seems gloomy, have you ever felt that way? You walk out into a bright sunny day and the sun is almost oppressive because you are depressed. Even sunshine can be gloomy. Then I will say to myself, my faith in Christ is not up for sale. It's all I got. And you will not take it from me. No one will. So God help me. And I know the time. Yes, I know the time that the hour is late. The night is far gone and the day is at hand. How do you determine, by the way, how do you determine that moment when the night gives way to the day, when the night ends and the day dawns? How do you define that moment? When do you know the hour? Is it when you can tell a sheep from a dog Or is it when you see the silver lining on the horizon, which in actuality is a tender light blue with a suggestion of an orange halo? All this is is poetry from God. All this is metaphor of something greater. The real day is dawning when you look into the face of Jesus Christ. And you behold your brother. And you behold your king still smiling back at you. When God shines in our hearts to give the true light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, you live in that hour. Beware of it. Keep it, shelter it, and know that this is no metaphor. This is reality. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this text, this celebration of a victory, and also a victory that is coming, which we will pick up next week. We too often fail to celebrate the victory that Christ has won for us because we cannot see it. Open our hearts to see it. Open our inner eyes to behold it from every possible angle to see the glory of Christ who has risen and with him the light of God has shone into our hearts. Make our hearts bright with this light and let our lives glorify you as we enjoy this victory. In Jesus we pray. Amen.